Let's pray together again. Oh, Father, God, your word is holy. God, you hold your word in very high regard, very high esteem. God, you have said, what, what does my word have in common with chaff? God, it has nothing in common. God, you have said that, is my word not like a fire and a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Oh God, your word is a fire. Your word is a hammer. God, my words are chaff. And so God, I pray that you would do as you said you would do through the prophet Jeremiah, Lord, that you would watch over your word to perform it. God, my words are nothing. And God, I pray that you would fill up all that is lacking in my preparation, all that is lacking in my ability, all that is lacking in me. God, it is your delight to use broken jars to hold your glory, that your glory might spill out of them. So God, I pray you would do that today. God, watch over your word to perform it. God, let your Holy Spirit uh, do that which, uh, which you have sent your word out to do. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of James is a book of commands. When Josh kicked off our study in the book of James a few weeks ago, he noted there are 54 commands or direct imperatives within the 108 verses of the book of James, and that's a lot of commands. But in our study so far in the book of James, I hope you've noticed a pattern. God's commands are never given apart from what God has either already done or promised to do in the future. We were told to count it all joy when we meet various trials, not because trials are fun, not because we just need to buckle up and do it, but because God has promised that he is doing something in our trials. He is doing his divine work of sanctifying us and producing in us godly character. We are told that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, because God has promised to give wisdom to all who come to him in faith. He promises to give it without reproach. We are told not to boast in our circumstances in this life, either our lack of things or in our plenty, but to endure the trials of this life faithfully, knowing that God has promised that he will give the rich inheritance of Christ to those who love him. We are told to resist temptation, knowing that God is the only one who can satisfy our hearts. Sin will never satisfy our hearts. Even though it promises life, it only leads to death. We are commanded to not be deceived into going to look for satisfaction in sin, because only God gives every good gift. He alone is the satisfier of our souls. And he has shown us his goodness by giving us the particular blessing of causing us to be born again into Christ. Bestowing upon us the unspeakable blessing of being called the children of God. And as his children, he has promised to do good to us forever. So there have been at least four sermons and there's at least four commands that we've gone through. And every command of God is attached to God's promises. Every command of God is attached to what God has already done and to what he has promised to do for us in the future. The commands of God are not the commands of an angry father barking out orders to his children, just shouting the clause, because I said so. 
because I said so. Do it because I said so. That is not our God. Rather, God's commands always flow out of what he has done for us and what he will do for us. He commands obedience from us only in light of the goodness that he has shown us. And our obedience or disobedience reflects our regard or disregard for that goodness. And today, as we begin to look at James' commands in verses 19 to 25, I want to first see that these commands are no different. Everything that James is going to command us today flows from the fact that God has done unspeakable good to you in Christ. Now, when I was a boy, my parents provided me with a home. They provided me with food. They provided me a place to sleep. They gave me clothing. And the obedience that they required was that I make my bed, that I fold my clothing, that I pick up my room. Now, would anyone say that these commands are harsh or unreasonable? Of course not. These commands only make sense. These these acts of obedience are only befitting of a child who has been given such a great living by the grace of his parents. It's only fitting that a child obey these commands. To make your bed is to live in a manner worthy of having a bed. To pick up your room is is to live in a manner that shows gratitude that you have toys, that you have things to do. These commands are not burdensome to the wise child who sees how kind his parents have been to him. My parents are here today, and they can see right through that. When I was a boy, I found these commands burdensome. And I'm sure that all of you have had similar experiences, either as a child or with your own children. These commands were burdensome for me because I was ungrateful. I was ungrateful. I did not look at what good they had done to me and say, wow, what a glorious living that I have. I did not have the eyes to see past my own immediate sinful desires, my own immediate selfishness. And every command to make my bed or unload the dishwasher or do the laundry was met with sighing and anger and laziness. I may have eventually sometimes done what was required of me, but only with bitterness and angst. And none of my acts of obedience were done in obedience. And this isn't a perfect analogy, but, but I think it is, so, it is similar in our attitude toward the commands of God. If we do not see how unspeakably good God has been to us in Christ, if we fail to savor and glory in the reality that God has reconciled us to himself, He has lavished every good thing upon us at the cross. If we don't see that, his commandments will be burdensome. But when we do see that, when we do see the glorious standing that we have in Jesus, then we will say with the Apostle John, his commandments are not burdensome. And we will testify that Jesus was true when he said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The true obedience that is pleasing to God can only come from having the eyes of our heart open to see the lavish goodness that God has poured out on us. And therefore, the first thing that we need to see before we consider any of the commands that James has for us this this morning, we need to see how he connects these commands with the goodness of God and the promises of God. And if you have tasted of the goodness of which he speaks, then these commands will will uh, will be sweet to you. If you have not tasted of the goodness of which he speaks, these commands will be burdensome or boring to you. 
But in them, we will find life and peace and safety. So let's look at our text. Now, we're going to focus on, on verses 19 to, to 24, really, this morning. Uh, but first, I'd like to, we're going to start back at 13 and just very briefly run through it, because we need to build up to verse 18, because this is the foundation of everything that James is going to say next. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Now, I won't repeat Reed's message last week, but very briefly, James charges that we dare not make the mistake of saying that our temptations come from God. We dare not do it. God tempts no one. Temptations are given power by our sinful desires and our flesh. And he continues, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. Don't go there. Don't go there into thinking that. And then he reiterates by giving this special proof. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James is saying God can't be the father of sin and temptation because God is the father of lights, and you know it. There is no shadow of changing in him. He is constantly good all the time. As Reed touched on briefly last week, God is most certainly sovereign over sin, and he is sovereign over temptation, but he is not the source of these things. And that's a crucial distinction. James says that all of God's dealings toward us are good. The mountain of the evidence of God's goodness toward us should make it unthinkable to us that God is the one responsible for our temptations. We want to talk about God. We sang about God's goodness, right? The breath in our lungs is from him. You want to talk about God's goodness? He gave you breath today. You're breathing air now. God is unspeakably good to you. But then, as a final proof for this argument, James gives this supreme evidence of God's goodness in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wow. Now this is the gospel. This is the evidence of God's supreme and unspeakable goodness toward us. While we were dead in sin, dead in sin, we were dead things walking around. We were dead in sin God chose by no force of coercion to his will. In his good pleasure, he chose to bring us forth, to let us be born again by the word of truth. By his gracious plan that he had in effect before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, was made manifest in the flesh to die for you, to die for me. Adam's sinful race brought back to God by the goodness of God. He did this all in his good pleasure. He was pleased to do it. Jesus was pleased to endure the cross, despising the shame, because he looked to the glory of what was on the other side, that he would reconcile beloved sinners to himself, that he might remove all of our shame from us, every shadow of guilt, that we would live with him forever, that we would dwell with him forever, every barrier that prevented us from receiving the goodness of God, from basking in his, in his glory, from, from knowing his joy, from experiencing his joy, every barrier he has broken away. He has ripped it away at the cross. Ripped it away. 
And he took you as first fruits. That is the choicest and most favored of the harvest. Not because there was anything good in you, but because, because God so delighted to show his glory that he took weak, feeble, blighted crops and said to them, you are my beloved. In you, my soul delights. Then he took you and me, right? He took a wretched stock of diseased grain and transformed us. Transformed us to be born again by the power of his spirit into a choice and sacred offering for himself. He took all your shame at the cross. In its place, he gave you joy and riches and honor. And that, James says, that is the evidence of God's goodness. Lest there be any confusion, lest there be anyone who doubts, this is the evidence of God's goodness. And I pray that you feel that today. I pray that you know that this is the jealous, unquenchable love that God has toward you. And James says, if I may be so bold, you have no right. You have no right to deny the goodness of God. I had no right to deny the goodness of my parents. Now, I didn't know my mom was going to be here today. But I'm going to go here, though, right? I had no right to deny the goodness of my mom when she asked me to pick up my room. And you know what? When I didn't pick up my room, guess what my mom did more often than not? She picked it up for me. She picked it up for me. Can I deny her goodness? You know, Jesus Christ, I, I, did, I, I did nothing but disobey. I did nothing but rebel against him. And what did he do? He came and he filled up what was lacking in me at cost to his own flesh. My mom's recovering from knee surgery right now. At least in part, my mom has new knees because she labored and poured herself out for me. There's gospel in that. There is gospel in that. And I pray that we see that. And now, in view of the goodness of God, in view of this unspeakable goodness, now we come to verse 19. Know this, my brothers. Know this, my beloved brothers. Now, this is important. We need to get this verse rightly, I think. What is the this that James is referring to? What is this thing that he wants us to know? Is he referring to the list of commands that's coming next? No, I don't think he is. He's referring to verse 18. Know this. Know this goodness of God. Know this goodness. He's not abandoning the foundation that he just laid in verse 18. He is building on it. And I think this is crucial that we see that James is not breaking from his train of thought here. I think if we start to read verses 19 to, 19 to 25 disconnected from verse 18, I think that all the gravity of what he's saying starts to, starts to unravel. Because the obedience that James is calling for in these next verses flows out of the glorious goodness that we see in verse 18. Now, in most of your Bibles, you'll probably find that verse 19 is the beginning of a new paragraph. And depending on your translation, you may also see there's a section header in there between verse 18 and 19. Maybe something like hearing and doing the word or, or some header like that. But I want you to ignore these for today. Remember when the New Testament was written in Greek, there was no paragraph breaks. There was no verse numbers, no chapter numbers, no headers, not even punctuation. And depending on your translation, you're also going to see there's a colon in verse 19. Now, the ESV reads, know this, my beloved brothers, colon. And similarly, the NIV reads, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this, 
colon. Now, when we write, at least when I write, normally the most common use of the colon that we, we find is, is we use a colon to draw direct attention to a list or a noun phrase that's about to follow. And I think that's how we typically read verse 19. However, the colon can also be used to join two sentences where the second sentence acts to sharpen or explain the first one. But I'm going to take the view just for the purposes of, of getting my head into this text. I think this colon just causes problems. And I think the King James actually gives the best clarity here. It drops the colon and it reads, coming out of verse 18, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, in light of this goodness, my beloved brethren, this is how we ought to be. James is not dropping his point in verse 18 and saying, hey guys, I want you to know this list that I'm going to give you. Okay, forget what I said. All right, new paragraph. Leave that where it is. Forget that. I want you to know about this list I'm going to give you. You guys need to buckle down and do this list. No, no. He's saying, brothers, I want you to know. I want you to know the goodness of God. Beyond any shadow of a doubt, he is good to you. Behold the wondrous good that he has done for you by causing you to be born again into Christ. And knowing this, brothers, here's how you ought to respond to this great, good God. This is the kind of obedience God is interested in. The obedience that flows out of a response to the gospel. It is in response to what God himself has done. Christian obedience is not about coercing God into blessing us. Our obedience springs forth from seeing the blessing that God has already given freely. So how does James say we are to respond to this great, good God? First, he says that we must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, we, we could take those one at a time this morning, and part of me really would have liked to, but, but I'm going I'm to summarize and say, James establishes here that the first thing we must do is learn to be quiet. In this verse, I don't think James is referring only to being literally slow to speak with our tongues, but he, well, she does speak extensively about that in chapter 3, but rather I think what he has in view is the orientation of our hearts toward God and toward our trials. This is, this is the logic I'm picking up. Knowing how certain your salvation is in Christ, knowing how certain you can be that God is for you and not against you, you should not respond to the trials of life with a clamorous spirit. Rather, you should be quiet before the Lord. Unless you put away this clamorous spirit, you will be stuck kicking against the sanctifying work that God has promised to do for you in your trials. In view of God's goodness, when you meet trials in life, you should not respond by becoming frantic and anxious in your heart. You should not immediately begin having that internal conversation with yourself, which we're all prone to, that says, that just, it just focuses on how hopeless things are. What am I going to do? How is this? What is going on? How is this possible? What is happening? You should not become angry in your heart, either at other people or about your circumstances or at God. No, be silent before the Lord. When you come across a trial, be slow. Be slow to indict God. And say, God, what are, what are you doing? What, are you, what have you done here? Be very slow to do that. 
Remember that this God who has done unspeakable good for you is the Lord over all the universe, and he loves you. Habakkuk 2.20, I love this verse. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This God who rules over everything, time and space, tragedy and loss, pain and suffering, everything, remember that he is in his temple. He is on his throne. And this trial that you're going through has not slipped his hand. He is on his throne. He is in his temple. He has not abandoned you. And therefore, be silent and wait for him. Quiet your heart and trust in his promises. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Know that I am God. Well, what is God? What is God? My mind goes to Isaiah 46, right? I am God. There is none like me. I am God. There is no other. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Declaring, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. That's your God. And what does he purpose toward you? In Jeremiah 32, he says that I will make a covenant with them, that I will never turn back from doing them good. That's your God. He is in his temple. He has promised good toward you. He has promised it by his own authority. Remember how God delivered Israel when the Egyptians were about to destroy them at the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14? It says this, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So the threat of death came upon them and immediately they became frantic. What are we going to do? Why is this happening? This is all your fault, Moses. And we see here the clamorous spirit at work. It's the loud, confused, angry spirit that forgets all of God's goodness in the moment of trouble. The Israelites were so quick to forget all the wondrous good that God had just done for them in bringing them out of Egypt, out from under the grip of slavery with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. They laid aside the promises of God and they turned immediately to anxiety and fear and anger. But then Moses responded to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, they shall never, I'm sorry, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Israel would go on to repeat the same behavior again and again in the wilderness, complaining every, God, every time they encountered thirst or hunger. The spirit of clamor would rise up again and again, and they would cast out of remembrance all the good that God had done for them. And I exhort you today, brothers and sisters, let us not be people who repeat that folly. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to do. 
Let us be silent before the Lord. Let us remember how Christ Jesus led us out of Egypt, right? Not out of physical slavery, but but more than that, out of slavery to sin. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he has done it. He is the one who has brought us out into this wilderness. He did not bring us out here to die. Rather, he is leading us to glory, sustaining us one day at a time by the bread that comes from his hand, giving us complete assurance that that which he has promised, he will be faithful to perform. Therefore, be silent. Let these trials have their effect. God does have plans in these trials. Let him work into you that which is pleasing in his sight. Let the righteousness of God take root in your heart as you follow Jesus through this desert, trusting him in a spirit of quietness that he will bring you safely to his promised inheritance. Now, when the Israelites first came through the wilderness to the promised land, they saw how great and mighty the nations there were. Now, God had promised them this is where he's taken them. He's taking them to the promised land. He's going to cast out the inhabitants there. He's going to give this land to them to dwell in. This land of milk and honey, they're going to be satisfied by the fat of the land. God is bringing them into a foreshadow of glory. But how do they react? They despaired again in their hearts. And they said this, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Though God had shown his goodness to them so plainly in all that he had done for them, in all of his promises that he had fulfilled for them, they still had not learned to be silent and trust him. And as a result, God turned them away. The Lord said to them, None of the men, now listen to this, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, none of the men who have seen my goodness, I showed it to them plainly, they saw my goodness. None of them are going to come in to the promised land. He says, these, these men who have yet put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, or none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. So God turned the people back toward the wilderness for 40 years until all of that generation of faithlessness had died off. And as I think about this, brothers, we have something greater than Israel had. They witnessed the wonders of God's goodness through Moses leading them out of Egypt. But we have seen the wonders of God's goodness bringing us out of sin and into Christ. The very Son of God has led us out of slavery. Moses, who was a man, led Egypt out of, or, sorry, led Israel out of Egypt. Christ, the man of heaven, has led us out of sin. We have seen greater wonders than what the Israelites ever saw. Therefore, let us be all the more eager to quiet our hearts and trust in the Lord. Lest we too, right? Lest we too come to the gates of the promised land and find it shut to us because of our hardness of heart. We have seen his glory and his signs in Egypt and in the wilderness. Therefore, let us be silent before him, trusting with him, or trusting in him with a whole heart, putting away the spirit of clamor. For if we go on responding to the trials of life with anxiety and especially anger, rather than with faith, then there will be no room for the righteousness of God to manifest in our lives. 
Moving on to verse 21. James continues, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. If we are going to be a people who trust in the word of the Lord in quietness, who bear the fruit of righteousness that God means to create in us, then there are some things that have to happen. For us to receive the gospel deep into our hearts, there are things that we must do away with. There are weeds that must be uprooted if the word of Christ is to take root. A farmer would not expect his crops to grow well unless he tilled the field. Likewise, we should not expect the word of the Lord to grow well in us unless we are willing to till the soil of our hearts. Crops do not grow well on soil that has not been prepared to receive seed. Weeds must be pulled. Weeds must be pulled. Debris must be cleared. And this is what James has in view when he commands us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. There is no room for the word of the Lord to take root in us if we refuse to do the work of putting sin to death. Where the weeds of sin are left to grow, the good seed of the word of God will be choked out. It will be choked out. And this is why many professing Christians spend much of their lives remaining what we often refer to as stagnant in their faith. They have received the seed of the Lord, at least to the extent that it's been cast upon their field. But it does nothing but sit there. The ground is untilled. The weeds of sin grow rampantly all around it. And the only thing preventing the birds from coming in and just snatching it outright is the weeds are just so thick. Birds can't even get to it. The seed just sits there rotting. But all the while, the owner of the field deceives himself by believing that he will benefit at the time of harvest. The word must be implanted. It must take root. Brothers and sisters, we must break up the fallow ground of our hearts, as the prophet said. We must till the soil. We must pull the weeds of filthiness and wickedness. The word must take root if it's going to save our souls. It must be implanted. We must be about the diligent business of clearing out the weeds so that nothing else will inhibit its growth. And I think a warning that that I think is, is helpful for me is that just because you've seen God send some rains, right? He sends rains and and the the seed begins to grow, don't think that your work is done. That you just now, you go inside, planting is over, I'm good now. Rather, remain vigilant over the field. Lest the weeds of wickedness creep up again and again. And when you spot them, don't delay to uproot them immediately. It is God who plants the seed. It is God who gives the growth. Yet even so, he calls us to tend the soil. We must renounce every remnant of sin and wickedness, lest it be found on the last day that the word never really took root in us at all. And again, we have to connect this back to verse 18, okay? If God has shown us such rich goodness in Christ Jesus, if he has caused us to be declared innocent and righteous and holy before God, if he has cleansed us from every sin and filthiness that has ever been a part of our lives, how then can we purpose to continue walking in it? Like Paul says in Romans, right, that 
that how can he who died to sin still walk in it? it? There's a disconnect there. It doesn't make any sense. Such a man who is content to continue abiding in the weeds of sin has not tasted the goodness of Christ. In his case, the word of God has found no place in him. As the Apostle John says very, very boldly, no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We must receive this word. And we must receive it in weakness. I'm sorry, not weakness. Weakness, yes, actually. That's meekness is what I meant to say. Yeah, we must receive this word in meekness, in humility. The only thing that can save us, God says, right, is this word implanted into our souls. Therefore, the only work that we can do that is really going to be effectual, we need to make way. We need to make way for this word. Don't inhibit it. This, you need to wipe out all the weeds. Go do the work. Do the work. Renounce sin. Say, I, I don't want this anymore. I can't have this anymore. This is, no, this is not attractive to me. God offers me fullness of joy in Christ. Why do I want these weeds? No, pull them out. Get rid of them, right? Get rid of them. Clear the field so that in meekness that you can sit and you can receive from your father. Receive what he says. Take it. Take what he says, let it go deep. Let it save you. It has the power to save. James continues in verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It does no good for the word to fall on the soil of your heart unless it's going to take root and spring up to produce fruit. Don't deceive yourselves, James says. Don't for a moment imagine that the mere hearing of the word of God, the mere intellectual encounter with the word of God is going to do anything for you. A very dear brother of mine, who I don't think any of you know, he once set out to read the Bible in a year. And this was before he was a believer, he would tell you. And we were sitting down for a meal together, and he told me he just finished reading the Bible. And I said, well, what'd you think? Hoping to provoke some fruitful discussion. And he was surprised that I even asked, it seemed like. And his reply to me was kind of this timid, um, it, was a, it was a good read. It was a good, it was a good read. And that was it. That's all he could say. So he had just spent the year blasting the seed of the word of God upon his heart with a fire hose, right? Just recklessly, I, see, I just get this picture of, here's this field, right? He's got this fire hose hooked up. All right, word of God, let's go. And he just blasts it all over the place, hoses down this field with the word of God, and nothing happened. Nothing took root. The soil was hard. And yet, in his mind at the time, this is what it looked like to be a Christian. Just a, a heady, surfacey intellectual encounter with this ancient book we got to know stuff about. There was no seed springing up to produce the fruit of good works in his heart. Nothing, nothing came into his heart where he said he tasted the goodness of Christ. He saw his sin. He saw the goodness of Christ. And he says, yeah, I want that. Nothing like that happened. There was only empty religion. Good seed scattered carelessly upon a field of strong, healthy weeds. Verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. 
He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. I think this is kind of a, kind of a shift a little bit, I think, in what we talked about. But I think, I think what James is most, has most directly in view here is that one effect that the Word of God has on us is to teach us about our own character. In the Scriptures, God presents us with a clear picture of who we are. God's, God's Word shows us that as a member of Adam's race, right? Remember this, remember this creature of dust from Genesis, right? Adam's race, we're a part of that. And as part of that race, we're helpless. We're depraved. We are, we are apart from God, we are desperately wicked to the core of our being. Our, our, our hearts are so wicked, we can't, even, we can't even comprehend it apart from Christ. We are sinners who have turned away from God in rebellion and have desperate, desperate need of a Savior. And the Scriptures make this plain to us. They are a mirror that exposes to us our own true self. Through the Word of God comes the clear knowledge of our sin. And this is what James means, I think, for us to look intently into the mirror. We look into the word of Christ and we see exactly who we are. Now, my friend, when he read the Bible, he had to come face to face with this information. You can't really read the Bible and not come face to face with man's sin. It's kind of a pervasive theme of the book, if you've ever read the Bible. But nothing that he saw provoked him to action. Now, when we look at the scriptures and see the grotesqueness of our sin, when we look in the mirror and we see wounded ugliness looking back at us, what do we do with that knowledge? Does this knowledge of our sin bring us to our knees, crying out to God, what can I do to be saved? What must I do to have this wound on my face healed? Or do we turn away from the mirror and go about our business, forgetting what we just saw? That is what a mere hearer of the word does. He sees the ugliness of his sin. He may even acknowledge it at some intellectual level, but he feels no sense of urgency to resolve the matter. He has a gaping wound on his forehead, oozing with blood and pus. And if it doesn't get taken care of, it's going to infect his whole body. He's going to die. Yet he thinks nothing of it. He walks away, forgetting at once what he looked like. The ground of his heart is fallow. There are weeds everywhere. And he ignores the call to come to Christ, to believe in him for salvation. And in the end, if he does not repent, that mirror, the scriptures, they will be his accuser on the day of judgment. For in the mirror of the scriptures, he saw clearly what he was. God showed it to him plainly. And yet he was content to let the wound ooze. And Christ will charge him with the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And he'll say this. Was there no balm in Gilead? Was there no physician there? Then why is there no healing for the wound of my people? There will be no excuse for the man who refuses the free healing of Jesus Christ. For Christ stood ready to save him but he would not come. One commentator that I read, whose name I couldn't find, gotta love the internet, you know, there's a lot of great stuff out there, you just can't really source it. But I thought this was good. Through hearing and reading God's word, our knowledge of our characters is quickened. But does this quickened knowledge last? 
Does it lead to action or influence our conduct? Too often we leave the church or our study and the impression produced by the recognition of the features of our own case is obliterated. We straightway forget what manner of men we are and the insight which has been granted to us into our own true selves is just one more wasted experience. Wasted experience. So don't be that person. Don't be the person who glances at the scriptures and sees something vividly wrong with himself and then just walks away. Rather, let the reflection you see drive you to Christ, this great physician who stands ready to save you. I'll tie in verse 25 just, just briefly. I hadn't prepared to go into this in depth, but, but James continues, but the, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. See, there's something else in the scriptures, right? We see something else there. There's a different reflection that's not just our own reflection of our sin, okay? We, we look in the scriptures and we see clearly the law of God, the, sin, the law of sin and death, right? The law of God condemns us, right? You know, Paul says in Romans that, that through the law comes the knowledge of sin, the law was never there to save anybody, but to condemn us. So when we look into the mirror of the scriptures, that's what we're going to see first. And that's God's design. That we would see first ugliness. That we would see first condemnation and judgment that rightly falls upon us. But if we look closer, if we stay and we gaze into the perfect law, the law of liberty, we're going to see something else. We're going to see there is another reflection the reflection of God, right? The reflection of the character of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's, that's the one we need to see in the Scriptures. And when we see Him, when we see Him, when we believe upon Him, when we behold Him in the Scriptures, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. So till the soil of your heart, receive the word of Christ, which is able to save your soul and be saved. As I close, I want to I just very briefly address what, what I feel could be an elephant in the room today. Um, you could be criticizing me in your mind right now, as I criticize myself this way, and say, well, boy, Jason, you really haven't touched at all on doing in this text today. You're really missing the thrust of the passage. I thought this passage was about doing the word and not just hearing it. And you've talked a lot about hearing and you've talked some about like seeds and stuff. And you've talked about believing, you've talked about tilling soil, but you haven't talked about doing. You haven't, I thought we were going to get to the, 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 the doing of the works of God, the obedience, the obedience of, of, of obeying the commands of Christ. Well, yes, that is true. I haven't talked a lot about doing. And there's a lot more that must be said about the actual work of the Christian life. You know, there's, there's work involved in doing the Word of God, right? There's, there's obedience that follows. There is, there is work to be done. There is love to be given, right? There's, the, there's obeying the command of loving God and loving our neighbor. And, and there's the work of discipleship. There's the work of evangelism. There's the work of loving our church. There's the work of of, of giving to those in need, all of those things must be talked about, right? 
And I'll, I'll just have to trust that those things will be covered more in depth later on by Josh and Reed in some of the other passages in James. But here's what I want you to mainly see today about doing. First and foremost, doing the work of God is believing in him whom he has sent. This is where all Christian doing finds its beginning. In John 6, people approached Jesus and they asked him, just point blank, this is a, this is a great question, right? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? It's a good question. What must we do to please God? What must we do to be bearing fruit of righteousness? What must we do that God looks upon us and our acting and the way we live and God says, they're doing my works? Well, Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It all begins there. It all starts there. If you want to bear fruit, which I pray we all want to bear fruit, if you want to bear fruit, if you, if you come today, you go home and you look at your house, you say, you know what, I want some apples. What's the first thing you do? You're going to need some seeds. You're going to need to plant those seeds well. No fruit will come unless there is good soil, unless there is seed that is received, implanted in us, unless we believe in Christ, unless we, we look to the goodness of God that we have in the gospel, unless we look to that, believe it, receive it, let it go deep, then none of our doing matters. The chief doing of the Christian life is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The main work in the Christian life is the work of resting in Christ. Doing the work of God is first beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus in the scriptures and trusting in him with all your heart. If we don't start there, all the things that you do in the name of service, the name of service to God are, are just futile. They're like, I heard this analogy, they're like apples stapled on a tree. I love that. Apples stapled on a tree. It's not true fruit. Jesus said that a tree will be known by its fruit. If it bears good fruit, it's a good tree. If it bears bad fruit, it's a bad tree. If you want to be a good tree, you need good soil. You need to receive the word deeply implanted into your heart. And in Matthew 7, Jesus said that many will come to him on the last day saying, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Right? We're talking about works here, right? These are the works of God. These sound a lot like the works of God. Casting out demons, prophesying in the name of Christ. These sound like works of God. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So if you would be doing the works of God, you must first concern yourself foremost that you believe upon him that you are known by him, that you are among his sheep as evidenced by the fact that when he calls, you hear his voice and you come to him. So this is the doing that I want you to go home with today. Be a doer of the word of God by believing in the glorious truth of verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 18. That God of his own will has caused you to be born again into Christ Jesus. Believe upon him whom God has sent. Receive the seed of his word. And be so taken up by the truth of the gospel that you would be able to preach to yourself every day in all of life's pains and trials with confidence saying to your soul, be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Be quiet and wait for the God of your salvation and therefore put away all anger and clamor 
and be about the business of putting to death all that remains in you of filthiness and wickedness, diligently tending the soil of your heart by removing every weed that would threaten to choke out the saving work of God. And as that word of truth takes deeper and deeper root in the soil of your heart, as you believe in the gospel of Christ, God will bring forth the fruit of righteousness manifested in good deeds. The doing will happen, but it must start there in our hearts, receiving the word of God implanted. And then all other Christian doing will fall into place. Let's pray. Lord, we have such a glorious inheritance in Christ. God, you have showed your goodness to us at the cross. You have, you have caused us to be born again. You have, you have placed our feet on solid ground. God, we are your children and you love us and you will never turn away from loving us. And God, in light of that truth, oh God, let us be people who, um, who are quiet before you. Let us be people who receive your word. Let us be people who are about the business of fleeing from sin putting it to death, Lord, by your spirit, that we might enjoy you, that we might live in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.